Welcome to Gospel Tangents, the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. I'm excited to continue our conversation with Dr. Trevin Hatch. We're going to continue our conversation about his book, A Stranger in Jerusalem. It's a fantastic book. We're going to continue talking about the Pharisees and whether calling someone a Pharisee is anti-Semitic. Check out our conversation. Because I know John Dominic Crassan for sure, um, one of his arguments was the Pharisees weren't that big of a deal uh, um, in Jesus' day, but... Yeah, I just agree with that. <laughs> yeah, but then all of a sudden, the Pharisees are the enemy, almost, especially in Matthew. And he said that didn't happen until much later. I mean, he basically agrees with what you're saying, that Jesus and the Pharisees were more buddy-buddy. Yeah, in that aspect, yeah, in that aspect, I agree with him. Um, yeah, do you want to launch into it? you want to talk well, about it? Well, and I'd also, yeah, I'd like to talk about that. And also, I think it's hard for me, because you've got Pharisees, Sadducees. It seems like there's another group that I can't place. The Essenes, and the there's, Essenes. there's fourth philosophy. The Essenes are kind of more Dead Sea Scroll people, right? Uh, yeah, possibly. Po- okay. They're, they're, they're everywhere. And then some people assumed that the Qumran community was a scene. But there's a debate. Uh, oh, there's a debate there. Okay. Because can we think of Sadducees as Presbyterians and Pharisees as Pentecostals and Essenes as Baptists or something like that? Can we think of them as like different denominations of Christ- of Judaism, I guess? Yeah, you probably, yeah, you, you probably can. Um, the, uh, okay, so I'll, I'll launch in, and if, if your, your eyes start to glaze over, just t- just tell me, ask me a question, because okay. <laughs> uh, I, I could go off for like an hour uh, about all this. But in an, the way that if we if we want to go chronological before Jesus comes on the scene and before like we deal with the twenties, basically what you have is um, in the second century BCE, you have the Greeks in power, but then you have a revolt. You have the Mac- the Maccabees like the Hasmonean family and then this family called the Maccabees they, these grill fighters this that is they, the intertestamental period yes between I'm trying to remember I know Malachi wasn't the last book uh, was it Daniel was that the last uh, book of Daniel's the really yeah second century yeah. and so between Daniel and Christ this is the Maccabean period right yeah this is yeah second century before Rome really comes on the scene in the 60s BCE the Greeks are still there and you have this time period where Jewish, the Jews through the Hasmoneans took back their their land, their geography, their temple, and for the first time in 400 years since the days of Jeremiah, days of you know days of Zedekiah, so it's been 400 years they finally have an autonomous state, where they now can have their own king, they can have like the priest, the high priest, the high priest was always there, but now they have the high priest and the king, and then they're ready to go. That's the first time you see Pharisees. You know, come onto the scene. At least, according to Josephus, is writing later, but he's he's talking about this, and then there's little hints here and there in, in Maccabees and other places about what is happening. And in I, I haven't made this argument strong in the book or anywhere else, just a little bit. I think Maccabees is also where we get Hanukkah, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 Sort yeah. sort a very watered yes, very watered down version of Hanukkah. Um, but and then it continues in the rabbinic period and grows. But um, that's yeah, that's the generation. And the Pharisees show up on the scene, and I make the argument that they're filling the role of the prophets, because you have prophets, priests, kings. 
The reason why I say that is because if you look at the role of prophets throughout the Hebrew Bible, they are constantly in communication with the king. They're kingmakers, and they could destroy a king's career. You see it with Jeremiah and Zedekiah. You see it with, with Isaiah and Hezekiah, um, Samuel and Nathan, with Saul and David. It, it, and the list goes on and on. And so the Pharisees come on the scene, and they are immediately checking and criticizing and sometimes aligning with the Hasmonean kings. So you have Alexander Yanaeus, and then his, and then he, the short of it is, he didn't side with the Pharisees and it hurt him bad. Because in Josephus, says the, the, the masses followed the, the rulings of the Pharisees. They were teachers of the law, they were righteous men, like they were, they were religious, religiously devoted people. And so Alexander Eunaeus, he makes a mistake and he doesn't ally himself with them. And so people riot him and they, they, he doesn't listen to him. And he's a failed king. And so he tells his successor, Alexander Salome, a queen, he tells his wife, he says, I think it's his wife, he says, bring the Pharisees back into your administration, so to speak. You'll be a better, you'll be able to accomplish what you want with the people. The people won't hate you, right? So then she, she, she brings the Pharisees in. And then her, and then her successor, John Hyrcanus, same thing. He says, he brings them in. He says, I want to be righteous. I want to be more God-fearing. And I want to follow Jewish law. So can you guys help me? Like the exact quotes in the book that I show this. He says, can you help me? So you get this idea where the Pharisees coming on the scene where they, um, they look and act like the former prophets. They're gatekeepers of the law. They keep the king in check. The masses are following them and their rulings. And, and so that's, um, and then Pharisaism stays strong for 200 years, at least if we take Josephus as word, that these, are, uh, these were people that they, they retained the support of the populace. And he says that they, were, they did not chase luxuries. They avoided a life of luxury and delicacies and food. They lived a simple lifestyle. They were cordial to the to the masses. They didn't speak over the elderly. Like they didn't they didn't make the elderly. He, he says all this in passing, but he has in, he has these hints that we put all the pheases together and we we gather. Okay, this is what Phariseeism means. They're very cordial. They're lenient in punishment. Of he says more lenient than all the other groups. Okay, so then we put the Pharisees there, but then the Sadducees are a group who are priestly. There's a, some Sadducean families who are priestly, they're of priestly descent. And what happens is they, they come from Sadok, um, or Zadok. This is the high priest at the time of David. That's their descendants, or they claim is, you know, that they're rightful heirs of the, of the priesthood. What happens is you have this group that breaks away. They move down to Qumran by the Dead Sea, this is the Dead Sea sect who wrote the Dead the Sea Scrolls. Essenes. Well, mm-hmm. maybe the Essenes. Maybe the Essenes. The re- the re- most people say they're the Essenes, but the reason why um, I say that, okay, maybe they were Essenes, but they called themselves something else. They called themselves the Sons of Sadok. We, Sa- Sadukim, Sons of Sadok, we are Sadukim, that's where we get Sadducees. Like, we are the Sons of, Sa- of, of Zadok, Sons of Sadok. So they're calling themselves Sadducees. But basically, they write a letter, in, this is a, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's 4QMMT. K4, uh, the Miksat Ma'ase HaTorah. In Hebrew, it's the precepts of the Torah. They write this document about, here's how the law is, is to be, here's, here's the law and here's how the, con- the temple should be conducted. They write this letter to the Jerusalem, a Jerusalem sect, Sadducees, and they say, you know we're right. You guys are following these, uh, this other group of people. He doesn't say Pharisees, but they're the influential group in the time. He says, you're following the rulings of these other groups of people and we hate you. Here's a letter explaining why we hate you. 
And by the way, that's actually a Jewish a kind of a, you know, whenever synagogues split away, you, you know, write a letter, like, this is why we hate you, this is why we're breaking off. Like, we have that letter, and then we have the Miksa Maseyatra, or QMMT. But, so you get a sense that now here's the Sadducees, who were priest, a priestly group, who um, are now forced to follow the, the rulings of the Pharisees, and, but everyone hates them. Everyone. The Pharisees hate him. The populace hates him. It's in all over uh, Josephus. Um, the Sadducean and, and the other priest, priestly establishment that might not be Sadducean, uh, they're not popular like, with the masses. We have riot after riot after riot in Josephus and sometimes like in, um, like even in the Gospels when they're in Jerusalem and it says they, the, the people, they feared the people. You know? So that's, uh, I mention all that to show that there's these different groups and there's this power structure, this power struggle, and um, so and now, if you want to hear my argument about you know the Pharisees and Jesus that uh, you know that I make in the book, a lot of this will come together. Um, when when Jesus comes on the scene after he's baptized and we starts his ministry, we notice that there are Pharisees that are following him around. They're they're constantly around, right? And the and the default explanation. For Latter-day Saints or most Christians is what, like what the what's the nature? Trap him. All the time. That doesn't make sense to me though. That you would have, and Matthew does this all the time. Matthew formulaically puts Pharisees and Sadducees together, traipsing around the Galilee, following Jesus on the Sabbath in a in a cornfield, saying, "You can't eat that corn. It's the Sabbath." That's uh, that's hyperbole. Like that's a literary. Uh, he's got some rhetorical literary goals. Um, the Pharisees are not hanging out with the Sadducees. Josephus makes this clear that they're enemies. And even in, in Acts, you know, Paul is put up there in the Sanhedrin and he knows that they hate each other. And he says, he mentions resurrection and then they start have this big fight, right? Sadducees versus Pharisees. Because Pharisees Just, believe in resurrection, Sadducees don't. So they, they didn't like each other. And Josephus says that the Sadducees controlled the Sanhedrin, but they also had to have some Pharisaic, the notables among the Pharisees, to participate. Why? Because they had the, they had the support of the populace. So that doesn't make sense to me that they're you know Pharisees are following Jesus around to entrap to trap him and to jab him and, and kill him. I see this as a cordial uh, relationship. And the reason why I say this is because if you if I, I break down every Pharisee episode, there's 38 episodes if I remember correctly, 38 different settings and episodes where the Pharisees are mentioned. They're, they're mentioned 99, 98, 99 times in 38 episodes. So I go through and I analyze every single episode. And I find that more than half of them are very positive. They come to him, they ask him a question, they call him master. Um, that there's a very cordial thing. There's, um, there's one instance where Jesus in Luke, where Jesus is giving a big sermon. And a Pharisee steps up and interrupts him. And then asks him to be a guest in a mealtime, in his, like one of these mealtime symposia. So Jesus leaves. What are the implications of all that? Number one, people supported the Pharisees. Like, they, they didn't hate the Pharisees. Otherwise, they would have been mad and rioted against this guy. Why are you interrupting him? Like, you, like they respect this guy. They let him interrupt. Then Jesus goes with him, and everything's peaceful. And then he, now he's, like, this doesn't represent all Pharisees, but that one Pharisee, or whoever this Pharisee is eating with, he, he brings Jesus in. So I look at every single one, <clears throat> one of those um, episodes, and I show that <clears throat> most, sorry, <clears throat> that half of them are positive. There's 17 episodes that appear to be negative. Like just from a superficial reading, we think, oh, this is a negative episode. Like something, there's some, you know, uh, contention here. But then I analyze them, and most of those aren't. 
So another example is in, um, in fact, I've got the references. I couldn't remember. I, I, there's so many. Okay, this is in Matthew 21, where this is the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus goes to the temple, and it says the chief, in Matthew, it says the chief priests and the elders approached Jesus. They were going to arrest him. And it says that they, that the, the populace saw Jesus as a prophet. And so the, the chief priests were scared. Remember that? So they left. They weren't going to arrest him because they feared all the people. And they sent back Pharisees to trap Jesus. Okay, that doesn't make sense to me because we know the relationship between chief priests and Pharisees. It's not, you're not just going to have Pharisees doing the dirty work of priests. Even if the Pharisees were aligned with the chief priests, why would the chief priests leave, send back Pharisees who everyone hates to talk to Jesus? Like The fact that they're sending Pharisees back means that people trusted the Pharisees. And Jesus is sitting there talking to him. Okay, in Mark, it's the same thing. Chief priests, elders, and he adds scribes. They do the same thing. They're scared of the populace. They leave. They send back Pharisees. In Luke, and Luke does this all the time. Like my, Luke's my favorite gospel because he, uh, he's, he seems to be more historically reliable. He writes more like Josephus. He's more sophisticated in his language. He's more nuanced. Luke has the same people approaching Jesus, the chief priests, and the same thing happens. They leave, and it says they send back men pretending to be righteous men. They send back spies pretending to be righteous. It doesn't say Pharisees, but all the other accounts say Pharisees. And we know that the word righteous is, is, is a common word used in relation to Pharisees. It's religiously devoted. It's the Pharisees. Like, there's these people pretending to be Pharisees. Like, every episode does this. Like, the populace trusts them. Jesus trusts them. They're with Jesus all the time. So, um, it starts to get, of those 38 episodes, it starts to get smaller and smaller and smaller where you have this very few like core passages where it's like, Jesus is all out, you're a hypocrite, and you're whitewashed tomb with a, a rotting corpse. It's very few. But all of the others, Nicodemus approaches Jesus respectfully and even sticks up, defends him. Um, it's the Pharisees who... Uh, we know this from Josephus that they're the most lenient in punishment. Um, there's a guy named Simaeus in Josephus who steps up and Herod's trying to get someone killed. The, Fer the, the Sadducees say this guy has the death penalty. It's Simaeus who's a Pharisee. He says, no, no, just whip him and send him on his way. It's, it's excessive punishment. There's like three different times in Josephus where something like that happens and it's always the Pharisee who sides with the more lenient punishment. In Acts, you have Gamaliel, a Pharisee, who saves the apostles. You have the Pharisees with Paul, as we mentioned. They come in and the Sadducees like, want a death penalty. And the Pharisees are like, why? Just let them do their thing, and if, they're a, if they're, what they're saying is real, then we'll see the fruits of it. It's always the Pharisees. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and he steps up during Jesus' trial, and he says, shouldn't he have a, a better trial, like an actual legal trial? It's always the Pharisees. So you see where, see where all this is going. Um, there's riots all over the place in Josephus. The people riot, um, the chief priests and the Sadducees. It's everywhere. Not one time in all of the literature can you find a riot against Pharisees. Not one time. If Jesus, if, if they were so bad and they wanted to stone people and they were chasing holy men, miracle workers around Galilee trying to get them to trap him and they were conspiring to kill him, don't you think everyone would hate him? Hate them? Right? right? They never do. If, if Peter is willing to pull out a sword and chop a guy's ear off and fight for Jesus, why isn't he threatened by Pharisees and fighting for him? Like, they're, you know, they're always with him. It's a Pharisee who approaches Jesus in Luke and says, Herod's trying to kill you. Herod Antipas is trying to kill you. He's up in the region of the Galilee where John was 
where John was stationed, Beheaded. where he killed John. It says he, he was going after Jesus. It was a Pharisee, not one Pharisee, it's the Pharisees told him, which is why he went to Jerusalem in the first place. On his way to Jerusalem, Pharisees are with him. And in Luke, we have all of these stories where Pharisees are asking him questions about, they continue this debate about those who, those Gentiles or those people who are outside the house of Israel or those who are like outside the covenant. And, and all of that is rich to tell us the story. So do you remember, a Pharisee says, let's talk about this again. What do you do with these sinners or these people who remove, how do you engage them? Like I see you with them all the time, but like what's your philosophy about how to deal with them? And Jesus says, okay, I'll give you three parables. If you have 99 sheep and you have one that goes astray, like what do you do? And you go find the lost sheep, right? Just the implication of that story is that Jesus is putting the Pharisees with him in the role of the shepherd. He's not saying, Pharisees, you're the, you're the one sheep. You guys, I need to bring you back because you guys are just corrupt. No, he's saying, the Pharisees the one asking the question. He says, you and I need to go find the lost sheep. Like, we're all among the 99. We're the shepherds. Like, you, you just want to be with yourselves, the Pharisees and the people who believe it. But what about the lost sheep? Okay, then he gives the lost coin, and then he gives the parable of the prodigal and his brother, or we call the prodigal son sometimes, but the parable of the prodigal and his brother. Again, you have um, this debate where a son takes, he, go, he goes out of his way to remove himself outside the house of Israel. How do we know that? Because he's in a Gentile city with pigs, and he's paying for prostitutes, and so it's not just that he took in his inheritance and left. He went out of his way to remove himself from covenant Israel. Okay? He spends all his money. He's with pigs. He comes back. And Jesus, again, puts the Pharisees in the, in the older brother position. He says, you and I need to welcome these people that we keep talking about and bring them in. And again, there's that mealtime scenario. He kills the fatted calf. And like, you know, I, I don't want to go in the mill. The brother does not go in the mill. Like he goes, he leaves. They're like, I'm not going to go eat with him. I, I, I should have the mill. Right? So that's their debate. The implication is that the Pharisees are the brother of the prodigal son. And, and then in the story, the father says, all that is mine, you're, you guys are you're perfect. You're doing what you're supposed to do. And he says, all that is mine is yours. So that's every single episode of the Pharisees comes out positive with very few, very few episodes that are highly negative. So that's, um, you know, when they approach, I could, I could just go out forever. When they approach Jericho, they leave Jerusalem and they're going, Jesus is going down. Before he gets to Jerusalem, they're approaching Jericho and a man yells out, you're the Messiah. He says, you're the king, you're the Davidic king, right? The apostle says that his disciples tell him to be quiet. And it's confusing to some Latter-day Saints or some Christian. He's like, why are, they, why are they mean to this guy? He's sitting on the side of the road as they approach Jericho. He's yelling out, son of David. And they said, you need to be quiet. Most people don't remember that episode. What they do remember is after, after Jesus leaves Jericho and goes the 15-mile trek east, sorry, west to Jerusalem, comes up on the Mount of Olives, when they're having the parade on, of the donkey, the Messianic parade, when they're halfway down, the same thing happens. The people start yelling out, Messiah, Son of David. And who is it there that, oh, sorry, I get your camera. Is this still good? Yeah. Who is it there that says, um, Jesus, tell your disciples to be quiet? In that instance, it's the Pharisees. What's happening is that these are two aristocratic and priestly hubs, Jericho and Jerusalem. You do not approach these cities during Passover and have people yelling out, you're the Messiah, you're the new Davidic king. Like, you'll get killed within two days. You know, that's what happened to Jesus, <laughs> right? 
So when Latter-day Saints read this scripture, and they're, and they're not, if we're not very sophisticated with our understanding of the Pharisees, we assume, oh, there are the Pharisees again, all along the way, jabbing Jesus and you know, making it hard for him and saying, "Be quiet. We don't want you to say that because you're a blasphemer, like or whatever." You know, how, however we interpret that, that's not what they're doing at all. They're saying, "Be quiet." As you enter these, these priestly hubs, political hubs, you'll get killed. It's again, it's a Pharisee. It's the Pharisees who are, who are trying to protect him. So, um, that's that's my argument, basically. Uh, there's, I go off for pages upon pages, uh, three chapters, explaining all this. But I see Jesus working with the Pharisees. And all of that rhetoric and invective, all that polemic, hypocrites, a lot of that is coming after the Jerusalem Council, when, especially in Matthew, he's using all this language. And that is... Um, I could just explain real quick, I mean, if you got time, like how much time we got? Are you still good? I got time, yeah. Okay. That's the one I spent a whole chapter explaining. What about those few places where Jesus goes, like the, the, he's calling him hypocrites, or he goes into um, a synagogue and there's a man with a, like a withered hand, like a lame arm, and the Pharisees are there. And in Matthew and Mark, Jesus heals them. He, he didn't touch him because in Jewish law, you can't work on the Sabbath or, or engage in, in medical practice. Like the, because it's considered work, right? So it's kind of nuanced, but he just speaks it. And then it says that the Pharisees went out, they were f- furious, and they went out and plotted to destroy him. Even Bruce and McConkie, oh, I, keep, I keep kicking your thing, I'll turn here. Even Bruce and McConkie in his commentary says, this is really draconian, it's really weird, it's strange, I don't get it. Okay, well again, if we look at Luke, remember, if we, I always go to Luke, what does he say? And he says that when Jesus heals the man only by speech, which is, which is not, it's not work. Um, there's no Jewish text that says you can get in trouble for speaking anything. Only in the Dead Sea Scrolls we have something where somebody says they, they engage in business and idle speak on the Sabbath. They, you know, they're punished and they have to like, go set off by themselves or something. Like, they're not being killed, right? They have to remove themselves. And so um, in Luke it says that they were filled with annoia, which is bewilderment or confusion. And then they went out and they, they discussed the case of Jesus. They were annoyed and they they were they were confused, like who's this Jesus guy and how do we, this is early in his ministry how do we who is this Jesus guy like how do we understand what he's doing is he working you know how, how do we but it doesn't get translated that way we take Matthew who's on purpose trying to slander Pharisees for a reason and we run with that the story doesn't make sense um, and that's because there's this this rhetoric. This, this issue of Greco-Roman, like, polemic. Like, when you use polemic and invective and name-calling. And the, the short of it is, you have, um, you have, like, Cicero and Aristotle. They, they write these whole books on how to destroy your political opponent. I spend a lot of time in the book. But this nutshell is, is that they have these books that where you, the philosophers will follow, like, how to defeat your opponent in the eyes of the people. So if somebody thinks your opponent is well, brave... I think the current uh, Republicans and Democrats use that playbook. All right? the time. Like, this is... This is <laughs> yeah, I, I, I pull in some social science about a lot of this stuff. I'm pulling, according to Sigmund Freud and a lot of these people that discuss what happens with groups who are very close in, in ideals and, and also geography and, you know, and everything and how those rifts really happen. They're, they're, they're the fiercest. And then the language that gets used. And so... You, you look at Cicero's book on, 
on orator, like how to defeat your opponent. And they're saying you, you call them every name in the book, and what you do is you take what seems like the Epicureans and the Stoics and whoever is debating, like the people might not know the differences between us. So we have to find those little differences and magnify them and make them huge and say, and also call them money. Like you guys are doing this for money. You guys are hypocrites. That word is everywhere. You guys are vipers. Like you're um, every, I got a whole list of all the, the common yeah. words you know, show up. And so, it and just the, reminds me of political discourse. It's, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> everywhere. Yes, it's absolutely the case. And it's, it's silly because you have Lucian, who's a Roman satirist. He writes satire, and he makes fun of philosophers who do this. He's like, they, they tell lies of each other, and they try to like tell the, the, the biggest like lies and call each other hypocrites. And he, and he himself, like, he's, you know, he sort of slanders them. And this is the, I, I detail this and show that this is exactly what Matthew and the Jesus community, some of the community are doing with their opponents, the Pharisees. Because Lucian, meant, Lucian actually says, all of, all of these philosophers are like these people who dress in these really nice robes, and they look f- magnificent, but if you could see their scrawny little bodies, they remove their robe, and they're like, it's, people would laugh at them because they're so scrawny. Whitewashed tombs, you look pretty on the outside, and you're, you have a rotting you know, corpse. corpse. And it's just I detail every time like the the my, you're doing this for money, that's all over the place. So there there is that issue of using rhetoric. And Josephus do, does this. The uh, Paul does this. He's like you. These Jerusalem people are dogs. I hope they you know they castrate themselves on accident. Um, it's everywhere. Uh, Apion, this guy who J- Josephus just writes a book about Apion. Apion's this non-Jew who says these Jews, you guys are like the laziest people in the entire Mediterranean region. You take Sabbath day off, and your Moses was just a a charlatan. So Josephus is right back, and he just slams him, and he's calling him a hypocrite. So that's the setting, this this rhetoric that's used in a a contest. Um, That's where I place the hypocrite. And the, the, the word for hypocrite is important because it means play actor. And if we and I went and looked up, I'm not a, a classical, classical scholar, so I had to go look up all the research on what a play actor did and how a play actor was viewed in the Roman society. Play play actors were revered. The, the word is hypocrite, hypocrites, play actor, hypocrite. Um, in Greece, they were revered. In Rome, they were despised. A soldier could not be uh, an actor at the, at the play. He he would risk uh, being charged capital punishment and you know be thrown in prison. And so what? Ma- and if you look up what this means, like these are these are foreigner, free foreigners. These are a lot of the plays where play actors were assumed to be prostitutes. And the reason why is because you can't trust them. There's these unscrupulous people who you can't trust. Their 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 very skill is to deceive you. Their act, and so you don't know who they really are. You don't do business with them. They don't have Roman citizenship, and they don't have the same you know the same privileges. When Matthew was calling these Pharisees hypocrites, all of that baggage of a play actor, of the worst kind of person, the under the dark underbelly of society, he's dumping on the Pharisees because he wants to, you know, he wants to uh, really what he's saying is like Pharisees should be demonized. They should have their Roman citizenship removed if they have Roman if they're Roman citizens, you know. And so this is those very few core passages of the Pharisees. That's, that largely Matthew is just is criticizing them. That's where I place that rhetoric, because even in Matthew twenty-three, which is hypocrite and you guys are whitewashed tombs and all that, even there, Jesus at the beginning says, 
listen to the Pharisees, you know, and, and follow the law, but even do it better than the Pharisees, because the Pharisees preach a good law. Like, he, he's giving them a compliment. And a lot of the, and, and even like in Matthew, the fact that you would, the word hypocrite back then does not mean somebody who preaches one thing and does another. That's what we say it means. What it means is that somebody who's, who's living the law, it's like an actor, like they're playing the part. We can see that they're, they're, they're playing the part, but they're not genuine. The fact that Matthew is saying that Pharisees over and over are hypocrites means that he's acknowledging, in a, in a, he's like giving them a backhanded compliment. He doesn't realize he's complimenting them. He's saying they're actually doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're living the law, but their heart's not in the right place. Once you get into the, the situation where you're judging people's motives, and you can say, yeah, but they don't really mean it. They're scum. Like, they're hypocrites. Um, I mean, that, by the way he's calling them that, it's actually good for my argument. Mm-hmm. Right? Because, and there's other places in Matthew where Jesus says, I've got the reference here, but Jesus says, it's actually in chapter 23, say Matthew 23, he says, you, um, and he's just blasting me. He says, you have killed, you killed the prophets that came before us. And so, and then you will, and then I will send, I will, you will then, I will bring prophets or I will send prophets and you'll kill them in the future. Okay, that is, that is strange. Like, he's criticizing them for some ambiguous thing that they did in the past. Like he says, you are descendants of those who killed the prophets. Which prophets? You're talking about 400 years ago at the time of Jeremiah or 500 years ago, 600 years ago. And you're going to, and Jesus is going to condemn Pharisees for being descendants of those who killed the prophets. And then he says, in the future, you're going to kill those people as well. In other words, like that's exactly what Cicero and, you know, that's what, exactly what they're saying. Create this straw man and then, you know, and then hack to pieces, right? Um, he didn't identify, identify exactly what they were doing wrong. It's like this, oh, you killed the prophets. So every single, every single episode, every single time, it, it, it works that way. Um, and then they disappear from the trial. They're not at the trial. They're gone. Because most likely, if they were in the trial, they would have been like Nicodemus and Simeus, and they would have been like Gamaliel, and Jesus would have got off. Jesus, let him, let him alone. He would have got off, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, the, uh, I just want to state real quick that the reason why, this is not just some scholarly thing that nobody cares about. Like, you know, yeah, there's the... Par- I can imagine Latter-day Saints saying... It's, this is interesting and all as an academic exercise, but it's really the parables and that other stuff that matters. So why does this matter? Why do I spend like three chapters like really you know, detailing this? Uh, it's because the implications of this are that Latter-day Saints and Christians, and even before Latter-day Saints came, for 1,700 years you had, you had Christians demonizing Jews, killing them, calling them Christ killers, and they, 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 they did it to Jews in general and the priestly establishment, but also the Pharisees. And even like if you were to, I'm just one, let, let's see, let's see if we Google Pharisees and Latter-day Saints. I don't, I don't know if I'm, let me see if I'm, let's just, okay, Pharisees. Well, because we use that term always in derision. Oh, you're just being pharisaical. Right, yeah, okay, so here's, you got the thir- first three are the, the church's website, and they're just basic, you know, encyclopedia entries almost of Pharisees. Then, okay, then then after that you get the first, after the church's, like, propped up positions, you have the first LDS living, four signs you're acting like a Pharisee and how to stop now. 
I've seen this before. I didn't know. I just I didn't know it would show up here. But I've seen that before, and I actually sent LDS Living because we do that all the time. Um, is that is that anti-Semitic to to call somebody a Pharisee? Yes, because the, what that implies, and we, we what this is saying that, the, and if you read that article, and I actually sent LDS Living a message. I said this is not good for our relations, for LDS Jewish relations. It's deeply anti-Semitic because you're going through and you're saying, "Are you a hypocrite? Do you judge people? Do you do this?" And, and uh, these are these are Israel's leaders. If it weren't for the Pharisees, the nation would have crumbled and died out. You know, died out after the temple was destroyed. But it was because of the Pharisees who were proto rabbis. They they transitioned to the rabbis, the sages. Who a lot of times, in some instances, they were Pharisaic. They traced their lineage back through the Pharisees. And you're demonizing an entire group of people and their leadership by saying they were hypocrites, faithless, they rejected the law, they rejected Jesus. And because of that, we are, without trying to be too sensational or dramatic, we are contributing to those millions of Jews' lives being lost all throughout the Middle Ages, culminating in the, in the Holocaust, by perpetuating that interpretation. Because the in Philadelphia in 2019, I think it's late 2018 or 2019, you had the Philadelphia synagogue shooter. Right. He goes in, guns down 11 people. They look at his social media, and he says, I did this because the Jews are the devil. John 8, 44. Right? And so this is, a, as a Jewish studies scholar who knows the history about what happened to the Jewish people, Christians are not warranted to say that, Jews killed Jesus. Uh, we didn't even get into the crucify him episode, but th- that's well, I wanted very to do complex. That next, because yeah, um, the whole story about Barabbas I thought was amazing, and you said in your book that his first name was probably Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, in the, in the, in the, in the early manuscripts. Like, this yeah. is not some later thing. Yeah. So, and, and let's break down the word Barabbas. What does that mean? Uh, okay, don't let me forget. We can launch into that, but I wanted um, when we when I'm talking about why this is important for for us and for Latter Day Saints, I don't want to forget what the book what Second Nephi ten. I want to break that down okay. because we use that because that that implies. I was giving this kind of lecture to a group of people a couple of years ago, and there was this guy sitting on the front row, and he looked mad the whole time. Everybody else was like engaged and writing notes and stuff, and he looked mad, and at the end. He said, in kind of a smug way, he said, the Book of Mormon says the Jews killed Jesus. Like, straight face, like he wasn't, he, like he wasn't giving you any love. And, and so, um, so don't forget, I want to I break that down. Um, unless you want to do it real quick, and then we can jump into the, bar, the, the Crucify Him episode. It's just, it's, you know, it's whatever, that's whatever you want. Um, well, you, you, you want to continue with the anti-Semitism? Yeah, it doesn't take very long to explain the anti, anti-Semitism or how we do this. Um, because, and I think, let me just read it. I think I printed it off because I can't remember the whole passage. But, okay, so it's Second Nephi 10, 3 through 6. And this is what that guy was referring to. And, the, and, uh, and other, other people throughout like, sent me emails. Because this is not written to a Latter-day Saint, this book. Latter Saint audience, so I, I didn't get into this Book of Mormon stuff, but it says, verse three: Wherefore, I, as I say unto you, it must needs be expedient that Christ, for in the last night the angel spake unto me that this should be his name, should come among the Jews, among those who are the more wicked part of the world, 
and they shall crucify him. For thus it behooveth our God, and there is none other nation on earth that would crucify their God. Okay. That's... It's pretty anti-Semitic. That's, that's, that's bloody, right? Okay. And why don't we blame the Romans? It was the Romans who did it, right? <laughs> yeah, and what's funny is if... This is so ironic that if um, Christians were in the business of demonizing entire people, an entire nation, because of something their ancestors they thought they did, that's extremely ironic. Because what really happened is that the Romans killed Jesus. Tacitus, Josephus, they all... Like, nobody's denying it. Pilate, they killed Jesus maybe with the help of the corrupt priestly establishment, and they were corrupt, and I don't think that's anti-Semitic to say. Everyone hated them. Uh, they stole money, and they, they worked with Pilate. But no one, like, the Romans did this. So if, the, if Christians, later Christians, were in the business of demonizing an entire people, it should be the Romans, and then all the people that came after Rome, which became the Christians. Like, the Christians became the Romans. Like, the center of Christianity is in Rome. And, like, how come they're not killing Italians today and, de and demonizing Italians? You see, the logic is just, uh, it doesn't make sense right. to me. So when you look at this passage, it says that um, the Messiah should come among the Jews, and then it qualifies it. So among the more wicked part of the world, and then what is that? Who's the more wicked part of the world? Among the Jews. It's those who will crucify him. It's that one portion that had power, had authority to crucify someone. That's not the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of pedestrian Jews in the countryside. That's the chief priests, right? And then it says, no other nation on earth would crucify their king, would crucify their God. That word nation doesn't mean, like if we say North Korea is a corrupt nation, we're not talking about the entire population. We're talking about little Kim, right? Whatever his name, Kim Jong-un, whatever. We're talking about him. And it says that in verse 5, but because of priestcrafts and iniquities, they at Jerusalem, that's the priestly class, who's like stealing money from widows and you know engaging in corrupt practices. They'll stiffen their necks against him that he will be crucified. So it's simple to me. You don't even have to have any scholarship. Just read the verse. I mean, you have to know, like, it's, it's people who have power to crucify. It's at Jerusalem, and they engage in priestcrafts. So... I, yeah, uh, we can't use that, you know, as a as evidence to to demonize Jews. You know, when I moved to Baltimore to start my graduate program, the bishop came over, and we were talking about why I was there. And he says, you know, I, I feel sad, like all these Jews up here. He's like, this is a foreign world up here, ten miles north of Jerusalem. He's like, this is a foreign world. He's like, but um, I, I feel sad that all these Jews are in apostasy. Right? I'm thinking, like, I said, what, what do you mean apostasy? Explaining, like. It's like, well, they, they rejected Jesus and they don't have the truth. And I said, well, they didn't reject Jesus, like in terms of the history. And they are accepting their truth. They got the Torah. They're living their law. You know, Christ said, I have not come to destroy the law. I've come to fulfill. And the word fulfill means to live, to carry out, to live the law. So Jews are continuing to do what even Jesus said they should be doing. Continue to live your law. Um, they don't anything about, a lot of these Jews don't anything about Jesus. So they didn't reject him. So that's kind of, that, the reason why I wanted to spend time on that is because that's why I wrote the book. I could, I could have just written another book about the historical Jesus and deal with every, you know, but, but I wanted to deal with the broader issue. I, I raised the question in the book, where did this hate come from? Where did this interpretation come from? And are Christians warranted, were they warranted in the demonization of Jews? I, I raised that question in the intro and then in the middle, right in the middle of the book, which is then where I get into Judas, the Pharisees, 
priestly establishment, all this rhetoric and the Jerusalem Council, that's where I really deal with it. So I just wanted to, to deal with that before we get to the bar of us. So. so is the New Testament also anti-Semitic, would you say? Um, yeah, I, they're difficult words. I would say it's anti-Jewish. On some, It's complicated because the writers of most of the New Testament were Jews, Jews writing to Jews or about Jews or a combination, you know, a combination of that. And so they, uh, they're not demonizing the entire Jewish people all the time. Some people, like some authors like John and Matthew, start to go in that direction, but they're also very Jewish writers. This is why they're pulling in the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, is because their audience will care about it. So it's not just a wholesale rejection of Jews, but it is of the Jewish leadership. You know, so um, I don't think it's necessarily anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish, but it leads, a superficial reading of the New Testament leads to anti-Semitic conclusions. So this is where I'm lenient. Like if, you know, if, if somebody in conference says, you know, it's like the, it's hard-hearted Jews who rejected Jesus. Like, I really hate that. It's a pet peeve, but I don't, I'm not going to call the speaker like an anti-Semitic person because... The New Testament, just the way it's written, will naturally lead people into anti-Semitic conclusions. So it's soft anti-Semitism in the sense that like, we have to give people scholarship and to help them have a new paradigm. You know. So we we should definitely quit using the word Pharisaic. You know, you're just being Pharisaic. Yeah, and it, you know, and I, yeah, there was a time where I never used it, but it's so, like, I still sometimes say you're being like a Pharisee based on how we use the term. But even, yeah, I don't, I don't like to use it. And even when I use it myself, I'm like, you know, I really, I started to say, you're being like a Sadducee, but that doesn't mean anything to anybody. <laughs> but I say that a lot. And I say, you're like a Sadducee. What we, and then I say, what we think are Pharisees, but it's really Sadducees. So, you know. Anything else on the anti-Semitism angle then? Because um, it sounds like you think John and Matthew are the most... Uh, they, they, they attack Jews the most. Is that true? Much less than Mark and Luke. Yeah, much less. Yeah, much less. And so we think Mark was the first because it's got the worst grammar. At least that's what Tom Wayman said. Lots of worst grammar. It's the shortest. It's the most. Um, it doesn't have the resurrection story. They're at least the original. That's right. Yeah, it, it, you can literally see in the text where Matthew and Luke are using some of the stories from Mark and then expanding them. And yeah. scholars who are great at uh, textual transmission and textual borrowing, it, it doesn't work the other way as well as it works the way where Mark yeah. is influencing. And Mark doesn't have a birth story either. Yeah, no birth story. Yeah. No birth story, no resurrection. The apostles just, the stone was rolled away and they left to fright it, right? Mm -hmm. right, that's, right, right? That's the original that's right. ending. Yeah. Um, and then Matthew said, oh, I'm going to improve on that. And he was after. So, do you think Mark was before or after this Jerusalem Council? Uh, after, I did, definitely think it's after. But I don't know if he, or whoever, you know, whoever's writing it, I don't know if the author of Mark is so steeped in the in the conflict that he he takes every opportunity to take shots at Peter or Jews or Pharisees. Like, there's some of that in there. But Matthew just blows that up. Like he takes every opportunity to take. He's taking shots at, at everybody. Okay, and then Luke softens it. Yeah, Luke then, softens Matthew. Yep, Luke still has some stuff in there where you're like scratching your head, but he he seems to be a little bit more nuanced. And where Matthew's saying Sadducee, Pharisees and Sadducees are doing this, Luke all the time. 
he's, he doesn't say Pharisees. He might say, you know, chief priests and scribes or, or Sadducees and scribes or something. You know, you could have scribes who are Pharisees, but like he's very, he, like he sees what Mark and or Matthew is doing, especially Matthew, and he changes it. It's like, okay, why is he changing it? And then you add up all those changes and you can see some, some, some themes, some, some repeated, like a, a theme here. And that is Luke is trying to tell us something. He's trying to pull back a little bit. And then John is just his own guy. He's completely different. Uh, I've heard John referred to as a Gnostic. That's possibly written by a Gnostic writer. Do you have any opinions on that? Uh, no, and I don't even know if... I've looked at the Johannine scholarship, and I'm not convinced, because a lot of people's... A lot of scholars will just deal with the formulaic, okay, Mark first. And it even annoys me when... I'm not a New Testament scholar in the sense that in my graduate training, I didn't get this nuanced... Like, I didn't get a whole class on the Gospel of, of John, where we just read John and we're dealing with textual... Like, that's, that wasn't my training. My training's in Jewish studies and Jewish history and text. But when I read the scholarship from largely Christian scholars on these texts, it's kind of silly because they'll say, Mark is written in the late 60s, you know, Matthew's written by 80, Luke 85. I'm like, how do you get 80 and 85? Why those five years? I, I'm not seeing anything in the, in the scholarship that, that, that could justify like an 80 and an 85 and then John coming last. Um, I see these texts written after the Jewish-Roman War in the 60s, and I, we can also see how some texts are borrowing from other texts, and so you can, you can give a chronology of who was written first. But I, I don't, in terms of John, yeah, there's his Gnosticism. He's completely different. And so some scholars say he's word. written last. Yeah. Like I, I don't know. I don't know. How do we know he's written last? Just because it's extremely different. Um, it's it's problematic in the sense. It's not problematic. It's different in the sense where you have the synoptic gospels have this massive theme of um, parables and exercising demons. John has none of that. None of it. It's completely different. Um, in the synoptic gospels, Jesus's ministry is one year. It's not three years. It's one year. If you just, if you literally look at where he's going, what festivals he's, you know, it's one year. In John, it's two years. We say that people say three years by tradition because he went to Jerusalem at the beginning, middle, and end of his as ministry. But that's only two years, beginning, middle, and end. It's not three full years. So there's enough differences in the time, geography, the themes. He's 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 talking about vastly different things. Like he wants to, he has the highest Christology. Jesus is the most divine in John. He's the least divine in Mark. So if you know, you know, if you trace the development, that maybe that's why people say John is really late. It's because it wouldn't make sense where he's right out of the gates in like the 60s. The first writer on Jesus is like he has him really divine. Like you can see a progression through the decades where they're they're not making it up. They're not saying, oh, he was a teacher and now he's divine at birth. But John's pushing his divinity before birth, and it's like. That, that's the way that Barterman goes with it. You know, he explains that it's he can see his divinity growing as you go along. I don't know if it's that simple. But. Hmm. All right. Well, let's jump back to Barabbas then. Um, because, well, I guess these are there's two things I, I kind of want to talk about. Um, and hopefully they're related. Um, because it seems like you said every king was known as a son of God? Every Israelite king? Uh, I don't know about right? every king. Yeah, the, the idea was that, yes, near ancient Near Eastern kings, and then especially Israelite kings, and even David, was called um, like God's son. Like in Psalms, we find this, 
or David or God says, you know, you you will be on my right hand and I will, you will be my son. And there's this this relationship of like a familial father-son type rhetoric being used. And so then Barabbas, Bar means son. I think most people know that, son of. And then Abba, I mean, that's what Jesus said, father, right? So Barabbas means the son of God, right? Yeah, so I mean, if, if they're saying father is actually God, but right. son of the father, yeah, yeah. And and is and then where did you find out that his first name was Jesus? This is in some of the, the earliest manuscripts where the the word Jesus is used, and then some of the early Christians like Origen or Oregon or however you want to say it in English, third century theologian, I think third century. He he makes this point. He says we have in our tradition in the text that his first name was Jesus. But we know that that's false because no one ever named Jesus was a criminal. So it's removed uh, by the early Christians. They, they don't like that. They don't like, they don't know what Matthew's doing by <laughs> setting up in this great irony, Jesus, son of the father, versus Jesus, Barabbas, son of the father. Right? So that's where, that's where that, it could also be um, Barabban, son of a teacher. But either way, either way, it's, it's not a name, it's a nickname. Okay. Because even in the text where you have, I mean, it could have been a name, but even Matthew says, Jesus who is called, or Barabbas who is called, what does he say? Jesus who was called Barabbas? Something like that? He says, who is called, and then he says, and he also Jesus was there who was called Messiah. And this is all throughout. You know, we got John and, um, John and his brother, are called sons of thunder, and there, there's all kinds of like this is a this is a standard practice of you give there's a nickname uh, that you give to people, and so yeah, they're not necessarily proper names; it's a nickname, which which makes sense. And so these, the reason why we're talking about this, uh, we're launching into Barabbas, is because this story, this crucify him episode, is, is Exhibit A for how um, for a passage that Christians have used to demonize Jews. And say, of course they're going to be dispersed. Of course they're going to be scattered. Of course the Holocaust is going to happen because it was prophesied. Even Jews themselves said their sins crucify him and that that sin will be upon, or that act will be upon our heads and the heads of our children. That blood will be on our heads. So that's, that's why the passage is very, very, very important for understanding. Uh, the reason why people point to that and not... Like he's he's in he's with the Sanhedrin he's with Caiaphas, but but that's where it seems like Christian interpreters are saying okay here's now where the nation like, condemns themselves. The problem with the whole story is starts with Barabbas because we don't know there's lots of different problems with the story. So number one, there's no evidence in Josephus or anywhere else that there was a Passover pardon where a prisoner was released. This only happens in Greece and it happened in the centuries before Jesus and it stopped in the first century. So scholars will suggest that maybe Mark, who was written to Gentiles, appropriated that or adopted that in to flesh out the story. Okay? Even if we take that as historical, that there was a Passover pardon, the morning of pa- after Passover, right? Or the morning, basically the morning of or after Passover, when you have a lot of pilgrims there, uh, and the city swelled to a couple million people, um, even if we take that as historical, there's problems with the setting, historical problems. 
and one of those is Barabbas. So you have Barabbas put up there as who has the exact same name as Jesus. And some later commentators say that this is probably, it was probably just only Jesus. But later Christians who wanted to demonize Jews, there were two different, they, they wanted to demonize Jews, and so they put up another Barabbas there in great irony. It's the, it's the, they let the wrong son of the father go. And this is, again, is borrowing from Leviticus of the scapegoat, right, where you have two goats that's brought in the, in the Day of Atonement, and you have um, the, these goats are blessed, one is killed, sacrificed, and the other one is let, let, let go out in the wilderness, right? So this, is, this has that um, hanging over it. But even if we take um, Barabbas as historical, let's say, let's say the pardon is historical, let's say the Barabbas figure is historical, you have another problem with how the story plays out where I ask my students and ask myself when I was doing this, what is this setting? Who's there? Who's to blame and what happened? It, it doesn't make sense that you would have 10,000 people there or 20,000 people all saying crucify him. We know where this would have lo- been located. It's like it's in the part of the city by the Antonio Fortress, most likely, and we know the landscape. There's not that much room for a massive group. It's not, it's not up on the Temple Mount where you could get 100,000 people. It's, it's in a different location, a very small setting, and... So we ask ourselves, who was present? Who was present? Well, we know Pharisees disappeared. They're not there. Jesus' own disciples, who fled 12 hours before, they're not there. So who's there at the meeting? Who's, who's there? It's the priestly establishment. And it seems like you know, one theory is that they, they were working with Pilate to rig the pardon. Because if Pilate says, who do I release? Like, should I release Jesus? Whether Jesus is alone or whether there's a real figure Barabbas... If, if he says, who should I release, even if there were some followers of Jesus, like his mother, somebody says, release Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus the Son of the, our Messiah, then the, Sag- the, the chief priest could say, hey, Pilate, they're yelling for Jesus, so release Jesus Barabbas. You see what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. we also know that they could have, it says that the chief priests already sought false witnesses earlier for Jesus, so they, they could have rigged the, the crowd. They could have planted people in the crowd like they, like they did before to, to yell out, crucify him. So that's one theory. The other theory is that uh, Pilate did this, because Pilate, Pilate looking like some naive, politically naive, nice guy, where he's just going to capitulate uh, to whatever the, these Jewish priests want, that doesn't make sense either, because we know a lot about Pilate. We know him from Philo. We know him from Josephus. Philo says he was vindictive. He was hot-tempered. He killed a lot of people without a trial. Um, there's, there's no chance that Pilate would have said, I find no fault in this man. If Jesus really did have a parade into Jerusalem, you know, with all of, um, with, with people yelling, you're the Messiah, and then he's contending with priests, and he cleanses the temple, and he's got a whip, you know, if, if all that is historical, you wouldn't, there, it's not a chance that Pilate would let a messianic wannabe, in his view, go, like really be released during Passover, which is often a time when you have zealots and people, like this is the very time when they celebrate that moment when uh, their other savior, like Moses, freed the entire nation from a foreign oppressor. This is when, like you have hundreds of thousands of people there, Pilate's not releasing. Like he, he's, Josephus mentions all, all, a bunch of other people who Pilate himself killed and slaughtered a lot of their followers like messianic type people. 
So that's problematic. Um, the other problem with the story is that if you had a whole bunch of people yelling out, a whole bunch of Jews yelling out, you know, crucify him and the blood will be upon us and our children, on our heads and on our children, there are specific instances in, uh, in the Torah, in Exodus, you know, that says that the, the sins of the children, the sins of the father should not pass down to the children. So you wouldn't, and this is also in Ezekiel, it's in a bunch of other places. So it would be you're very hard pressed, pressed to find a group of people who are not the priests who are going to say Caesar's our king, like they say that, Caesar's our king, and crucify him, all the blood will be on us, it has to be the priestly establishment. If I'm some, if I'm, uh, if, I, if a Jewish, if I'm a, a Jewish guy who has two kids, and I set up a tent, I come on a pilgrimage and I set up a tent two miles between Bethlehem and, and and Jerusalem, I'm not going in the morning to travel all the way to Jerusalem to watch Pilate release some guy that I've never heard of. You know what I mean? Or even if I've heard, and if I've heard, if I've heard of him, and he's one of my, he's like this, he's one of our Galilean like miracle workers. And I do make that trek. I'm certainly not going to say, "Yeah, crucify him." You know, so it's possible that Pilate wants to embarrass any Jesus followers who happen to be there. And if he's like, "They're going to make a fool out of me and have a parade into Jerusalem and yell about this guy," then I'm going to embarrass them. I'm going to set up this criminal, this other guy, who these priests said it also named Jesus. And regardless of how they yell out, if they yell out Jesus, I'm still going to release Jesus Barabbas. I'm going to embarrass these guys because they made me look like a fool. And you know, if things get out of hand, Caesar is going to come after me. That fits Pilate's, like that fits his personality. Mm-hmm. So that, that's all just to say that the, the story itself has historical problems of, you know, Jews yelling out and, you know, it doesn't say there's a huge group of people, but you can't blame six to eight million Jews in the Roman Empire. On the, you can't use that episode to come to that conclusion. So is that... I mean, it really sounds like you're casting doubt on the historicity of that event. Is that? Yeah, at least it's how it's told. At least it's how it's uh, how it's presented. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it seems like there was another story. Is it John, chapter eight that you said? Oh, right, 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 right. Let's tell us of that story. Is that is that historical? That's one of the passages where I about the Pharisees, where I you know went through each passage, and this is one that you can. It seems very negative, and it's one used to demonize Jews. It's not in the earliest manuscripts. In the first 11 verses of John chapter 8, you get the famous story of the stoning of the woman. She's, you know, and the movies really capture this. Like, it really shows our interpretation. Because it's Pharisees against Jesus. And you have Pharisees dressed in these black, with gold embroidered hats, looking ridiculous. That's not historical. That's, that's anti-Semitic. Um, it's become anti-Semitic to portray these people. They're not even priests. Why are they wearing all this weird garb that's black? That's number one. That's how they're portrayed. But even in the story, if you forget about the media portrayal, even in the story you have a woman brought, um, she made a mistake, they want to they stone her and kill her, and then Jesus says, if, if any of you have sins, go ahead, like, fire away, and then they walk off. That story does not show up in the manuscripts until like the 4th or 5th century. The, co- the manuscripts that are being copied, all of a sudden that story that, that shows up. And sometimes it's, sometimes it's not in the manuscripts, other times it's in Luke. And so it's kind of bouncing around, but it first appears on the scene like 400 years after Jesus. And the reason why is because it's a story that, that 
caricature Isis, whatever, mm -hmm. puts these, puts Jesus and Pharisees in this thing where you've got the Christianity, which is a religion of love, as as uh, shown through Jesus. Judaism is a religion of stoning, of rigidity, hate, um, and death, and violence, and killing, as evidenced through the Pharisees. So that's why the story came up. That's why, and I, I'm a little bit annoyed because even in evangelical conservative churches, some of them they'll have their their Bible, whatever the translation is, has a parenthetical statement. This does not show up in the original manuscripts. Like we're one of the last groups of people. That continue, that continue to use, that take this story as historical. And even some of my colleagues here, uh, I won't mention names, but some of them, I heard, I've heard them say, or in their writings, or in, like a class, like if I sit in a class, I've heard two or three different times where they'll say, they'll acknowledge, it doesn't show up in the original manuscript, but it fits the first century setting. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. It doesn't even remotely fit what we, what we know about Pharisees for, like, for the reasons I've like, shared. Yeah, they're much more lenient and that sort of thing, right? Yeah. It just it doesn't make sense for them to follow leaders and stone people, and you know, just doesn't make sense. So, how much of the gospels are historical then? Can you put a percent on it? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question because because it sounds like you, you. I mean, in your book, you went into so much detail about this story mirrors this story, this story mirrors this story, and you know, the question comes in of like, can we believe that anything is is historical? You know, and we talked about the Jesus seminar with the beads. Did this really happen? Uh, yeah. Well, okay. Let me. I guess I. So let me. Should we use one case study, and then I'll ask you what you think. Like, okay. What, what what what's the possible interpretations? You have in Zechariah, and then Ezekiel. Both in both of those books, and in Acts. So you have this, in, like in Zechariah. Well, let's start in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, you have Ezekiel sees a vision, where the presence of God is over um, Jerusalem, like the God's presence. It moves, he sees it moves over to the Mount of Olives, the mountain east of Jerusalem, and it goes up to heaven. And then later in the book, he sees that the presence, <clears throat> the presence of God comes down over the Mount of Olives and enters Jerusalem through the east gate. You know, God's presence is here again. In Zechariah, you have the figure, the Messiah figure, or the, this divine figure, touch down. When he comes again, he'll touch down on the Mount of Olives, Right? And then he'll go, and in, in Zechariah 14, I think, he goes and he enters Jerusalem through the east gate. You have, um, you have David in 2 Samuel 5, where right before he becomes, like right after he's crowned, like right after his coronation, what does he do? He enters Jerusalem. Like he goes to Jerusalem and contends with the Jebusite leaders. All of that is where you have Jesus going to the Mount of Olives, gets two donkeys, he has his coronation, so to speak, coming down the mount, like he's going, he's on the Mount of Olives, he goes there for a reason, enters the gate, just like Ezekiel, just like Zechariah, just like David does. And then when David, right after his coronation, he goes to the Jebusite city and he starts, he's threatening to break into the city and immediately is in contention with the Jebusite priests. And what do they say? He's like, this city is so well fortified that it, even our, line, our, our lame and our blind will turn you back. Like, we're so strong that even our weakest among us will, will kill you, will, will turn you back. And David says, no, when I break into to, to the city, um, I will turn the, bland, the, line, the lame and the blind out, and they'll never be welcomed back into, um, into like, what is now the Temple Mount. Like, they won't be welcomed back. All that's to say that this is, this is Jesus. Like, this is, this is Jesus' experience. He's crowned king, like, like he's a coronation from his people. He goes into the east gate. He's immediately 
uh, thrown into contention with the priests. And what does it say? It says, when he starts whipping people and he's doing cleansing the temple, it says, the blind and the lame come running to the temple. And then out of the mouth of babes, they say, here's the Messiah, the son of David. That's precisely what, like, that's precisely the elements in the David story. Because then, not only does David turn out the blind and the lame, but there's a prophecy in Jeremiah 31 where he says, in that day, the blind and the lame will be welcomed back to Zion, like to the temple now, right? So there's sort of like prophecy, some prophecy, you know, clearly, the reason why I'm saying all this is because Matthew, who's putting all that in there, knows of all those prophecies. In Psalm 8, it says, the, the, out of the mouth of babes they will cry, you know, they will cry out. And so, it's, the story itself is kind of strange when Jesus isn't there. Why are the blind and the lame and little babies in, in the middle of a riot? They won't, the blind and the lame won't be running into a riot. And there's certainly pe- people are going to get their babies, their babies and leave. Matthew's putting it in there. The whole the way he enters Jerusalem, what he says, what he does, the blind and the lame are there because it's about David and it's fulfilling prophecy. So the question I have is, with that kind of a story, with Ezekiel, Zechariah, 2 Samuel 5, Psalm 8, Jeremiah 31, all that, just dumped into the story, what is that? Is it historical? I mean, is it not Jesus historical? Is fulfilling profo- prophecy or a type or whatever you want to say? It could be, but what, what would that... Um, we'll just think out loud. What, what would that... How does that work in terms of our Latter-day Saint understanding or Christian, like whatever, Latter-day Saint understanding of God? Like, what would God have to... How much control would he have to have? And how much micromanaging would he have to do for, for a thousand years from David to Jesus to move the chess pieces so that David did this and Zachariah said this and the blind and lame are there with Jesus and the babes cried out. Like Somebody could say, yeah, he's feeling, fulfilling prophecy and it's possible that Jesus himself knows of the prophecies. He's like, I know the prophecies. So I'm going I'm to go to the, to the Mount of Olives. I'm going to get a donkey. I'm going to go in and I'm going to do this thing. That's possible. But there are some places where the narrator... Um, doesn't say that Jesus said that. The narrator is creating the story um, to pull in reference after reference after reference. I'm not saying that it's not historical. I'm just saying, what are our, when, when Judas is fashioned after Ahithophel and Yoav, uh, David's generals who are joining the conspiracy, and then the Amasai's other, they, they get killed, and it just so happens to fit. It's, it just makes you wonder, uh, you have to deal with what the text says. And you have to say, okay, are we going to worry about historicity or are we going to appreciate that these texts are meant to do something? I mean, I don't know how to answer that. Um, that's why I'm here. Yeah. You know, I'm supposed to ask the questions, not answer them. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so it could be, it's, it could be, it could be both. There, it, certainly there's historical kernels all over the place and, and um, historical Jesus scholars say, you know, here's a very early, like an, it's an Aramaic uh, it's an Aramaism that Jesus says, so it's, it must be dated early. And um, you know, there's there's all kinds of different data points that we, you know, there, here's a guy from Nazareth or from Capernaum or up in Galilee, and he's in the text. He shows up in Josephus briefly. He shows up in Tacitus. He shows up in these other texts. He shows up in the Talmud all over the place. The, the rabbinic writings of a guy who was a holy man. People thought he was a miracle worker. He was ended up eventually killed by Rome. And so we can fill in all the details. I think, I think uh, 
if he was killed by Rome, obviously he did something like storm into the temple on a certain parade and criticize and people thought he was the Messiah. So yeah, I mean, you can start to put meat on the bones and say, this is, you know, we don't have to throw everything out. But I'm not one to, to the reason why this is important for me is because people use an obscure statement in Obadiah and they combine it with Genesis and they pull out a passage in Hebrews and Revelation and they put together this some scenario where they're saying, this is how we should live our lives as Christians, or this is when the second coming is going to come, what's going to happen. And you get a lot of, you get a lot of critics of, um, of the church, um, and even some people in the church, where it's an easy attack to use. They'll, they'll say something like, even members of the church too that are, have not left, you, they, you use Jesus, and it's the superficial thing where you say, well, even Jesus hated the, like he even pushed back against the establishment. He didn't, he threw away the manuals and the, the structure, and it was like, they're doing that, and they do it all the time to take shots, to try to take a shot at the church, saying, we, ha- we, we should be criticizing the prophets. Um, we should be, like, Jesus criticized them, you know, so I, I'm not making a statement about, I'm not judging uh, ex-Mormons or like their methods. They can fight their fight, that's fine, but I just don't like it when people use the scriptures and pull out passages and simplistic narratives to justify actions. Whether it's demonizing Jews, whether it's demonizing the church, whether it's something else. You know, whether it's, let's try to figure out when the second coming's going to happen and... uh, you know, there's all kinds of things that people use the scriptures for to, to justify behavior. And every time I see them do this, I want to say, okay, you need to learn 500 things about the history, the context, what the prophets are doing before you can say, absolutely, here's a prophecy and here's what's going to happen. So that, that's why this stuff is important to me. It's not, to, it's not to just go in the classroom and say, we can't take any of this, like, let, let me just cram this down your throat and like force you to say that this isn't historical. The only the reason why is to just help them become a little bit more engaged with the text and to see the angles, see what scholars are doing, why scholars do it, what the implications are, what the sources are, uh, so they can appreciate it. They can appreciate what happened and how we know it, what it happened. You know, we can say anything we want in church. We don't know what Jesus said to Caiaphas. He died after that. So how do we know what he, oh, that conversation, how do we know, we don't know what he said. And some of my colleagues will say, yeah, but Jesus gave it in Revelation. Like, he, re- he revealed it to the author of Matthew, and Matthew wrote it. Okay, uh, I mean, that doesn't really fit with how, what we know about Revelation. Like, how many Revelations are someone given where they're writing detailed, and not, not only that, Matthew's not even in agreement with Mark, not even in agreement. With, so this, if it was a revealed conversation, within, within 10 years, it's, it's like, complicated because now Luke doesn't agree with Matthew and like we, we don't have the revelation right yeah I mean you know as LDS we like to say we believe the Bible is the word of God as far as it's translated correctly but then you hear these stories that uh, the woman at the well that wasn't in the original text and then you know the the short ending of Mark that the resurrection didn't happen and there's no birth story and for some people I think those can lead to a crisis of faith and say, well, can I, can I trust anything? I mean, is, is the, you know, there are plenty of people who say that the Book of Mormon is, um, like inspired fiction or something. Inspired fiction. Could, could you, 
I mean, there there will be people. Bart Ehrman, I guess, would be one of those. You know, is are the Gospels just fan fiction for for Jesus? You know, tennis shoes among the Nephites, right, essentially. Right. How would you respond to that? Um, I would. It's okay if my students ask that question in class. Is this just, is this just made up stuff? I, you know, and I'd say no. I mean, all all semester long, we've looked at. Um, We've looked at Jesus. We've looked at all these different scenarios: the mealtime symposia, the you know the the rift between Paul and Peter. Like, there's clearly a story here. There's clearly somebody who was killed, who was believed to be a messianic candidate. In other words, people thought he might be the Messiah or a miracle worker. He had followers. There's traditions about where he died and you know where the, where he was born, where he died. All that's there, and so these stories, these parables, some of them go. I don't think, I don't think the author of Matthew and Mark are just making up a bunch of parables out of thin air, like these brilliant parables. I do think some of that is a lot of that is oral tradition coming from the teachings of Jesus. Now, sometimes they change them, or they, they, you know, they they see that Jesus said something, but they don't know the context, and so they create a context. Like in one example is when Jesus comes out of the temple with his apostles, and it said the apostles said, "Look, Jesus, what great big stones there are." Like, that's a child, that's a, a child's way to say something. Look, like, what big teeth you have. Like, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. they've been, they know what the temple is. They've been there many times. So for them to come out of the temple and, and pretend like they've never seen it, look, Jesus, what big stones there are. That's because the writer doesn't have the context, and he wants, the, the oral tradition is that Jesus said, not one of these stones will be left upon. Like, he, that's tradition that Jesus maybe prophesied of this. That's oral tradition that he prophesied of the destruction of the temple, but they don't know the setting so they create the setting. It's coming out. So it, that's all it is. I mean, it's still historical, right? It's just we have to, you know, be careful about how we interpret it and how we use it and why we know what we know. But my motive for the Judas stuff and for the Pharisees and understanding when the Gospels were written and they were written after the Jerusalem Council, the reason why I do all that is um, it's not just for scholarship's sake. It's to help my students. And after my students read a lot of those chapters and we discuss it, they're blown away they say, I never, like one girl, last time I taught this, she said, I've never understood what it meant to study the scriptures. You know, and so, and at first I thought, is this going to like throw them all into like a faith crisis? Right. But the last time I taught, like the first couple times I've taught at BYU, like back in 2015, I was so like seminary-ish because I thought I, like I was the first time I was teaching at BYU before I taught at LSU and UVU. And I just, thought that's how I had to do it and it was just juvenile and I, like I, my ratings weren't great so I'm like you know I'm not going to do that I'm going to stick with my personality just do hard-boiled scholarship with them in a context of faith and everything right. and last time I taught uh, I was the most academic I've ever been I'm all these issues I'm talking about it and my ratings went sky high sky high like 16 out of 50 students said it's the best learning experience they've had ever at BYU that is astounding and so I, I don't like I didn't happen before, so I'm not saying like oh it's all me. It's my approach. Right. It's academic approach, and they love it. Well, this is the kind of stuff that I love. I mean, the one thing that I thought was pretty interesting. It's probably been at least 20 years. There used to be a, a thing on uh, PBS called The First Christians. I don't know if you ever saw that. I remember. But at any rate. Um, they cover a much longer time period, kind of the evolution of Christianity, and 
There was the Bar Kokhba revolts, which happened, I believe, in 110, 120? The 120s, 130s, I think, yeah. Okay, and so that also seemed to be a, another big split where Christians became... I mean, we talked about the, the council in Jerusalem in 50, but this was where the Christians really... Before that had been kind of known as a Jewish sect and still kind of known as Jews. But with the Bar Kokhba revolt, it seems like then they were like, no, we're not Jews, we're, we're Christians. Much more so than, than the, the council that you were talking about with Paul. Um, and like I said, you stopped before that. Are you familiar with that? And do you huh, agree yeah. with that sort of I, thing? I don't know if it's the Car- Bar Kokhba rebellion that does that, but I, but I do spend a lot of time in these chapters where I'm talking about the, in, the, inter, the intra-Jewish Sorry, the intra-Jesus movement. Within the Jesus movement, that rift that we talked about in detail, I also in that same chapter talk about the, the, the war between Jews and Romans. Like I do talk about that and, and how and, the, and it erupts in the, in the Jewish-Roman war in the 60s. And then all throughout, it gets well, that's worse. That's where Nero blames, that, is that where Nero blames the Christians for, the burning, for himself burning Rome? Yep, blames the Christians. They put them on stakes and they light their bodies on fire to light the city. Like, it's, it's bloody. You have Paul and James and Peter most likely dying, all of them, uh, in the 60s, in this, this, you know, this, this, this problem between Rome and Jews. And so I, I cover all that to say that not only are the authors of the Gospels Jews, they're also Christian, the followers of Jesus. So they're really in a tough spot because they can't say, like they're writing in the Roman Empire, in the day when Paul's already been bringing in Gentiles. So of course they're not going to demonize Rome, pay to Caesar, our king is Caesar, Pilate's a good guy. Like they constantly do this, right? Um, no centurion, nobody's had more faith than you. And so they have to, they're not, they're, they're not going to demonize Pilate. So they have, they have to appease Rome. They can't blame, they can't, they can't accuse Rome of killing their God. So they have to appease Rome. And then they have to also, they're also dealing with these inter, inter Jesus, like the Jesus movement is having their own inner problems. And then in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 110s, they also um, have a problem after the temple is destroyed when Judaism, the system is being redefined. Like there's all kinds of negotiations and the rabbis are saying this is what Judaism is. And then there's a bunch of other groups that are left out on the margins. And by, the, by that time, after the temple is destroyed in 70, by the time you get to the late 70s, 80s, and 90s, when they're trying to figure out what does Judaism look like, our system, our law, by that time the Jesus movement has become just a massive Gentile sect. So of course they're going to get left out. And that's where that's also where you have not just demonization of Pharisees, but you have demonization of Jews, like whole groups of Jews in the text. I mean, I hope that makes sense. But two things are going on. Um, it's the same. Josephus has the same problem. He's a Jew after the war, being commissioned by Rome to write a history of the Jews, and so he has this tough time of saying, "I'm going to write the history of the Jews to show the Jews that." Rome is not so bad, and to show the Romans that Jews aren't so bad, right? And it's like it's the same thing the Gospels writers have. It's the same problem that they have. Hmm. Well, cool. Well, is there anything we've missed? No, I mean, I we covered a lot of ground. Let me just look. 
there's anything I'm dying to talk about, I think I covered I covered everything. There's there's all kinds of that. What I hope what I hope happens. There, there's going to be some people that just hate a lot of this, and they'll they'll put in comments and they'll say, you know, this guy's another, you know, these arguments are weak or like, didn't he know about this one verse? There's going to be that, but I hope people, you know, there's a lot of data points. There's a lot of there's a careful way that I take my students in the class or through the book. So um, we've got YouTube videos on this material. So. If I haven't articulated something, or something sounds sloppy, uh, just read the book. Read yeah. the book or watch the other videos. Yeah, and I've got it on Audible too. If people aren't book readers, you can get it on Audible and listen to my voice. <laughs> if, if, if you don't mind listening to my voice for <laughs> eight hours or whatever, <laughs> turn it turn it on one point seven five speed. There you go. Cruise through it. <laughs> so, have you had any troubles at BYU as far as teaching this kind of stuff? No, not this kind of stuff, but I just don't know how many people have read it. Um, I mean, I have some colleagues who know what I, you know, they know what I write, and they, some, one of them came to me and says, ah, this is amazing, but well, how do you, like, it seems like, like, I don't know what to do with the Gospels now. Do you tell, how do you deal with this with your students? I'm like, oh, I don't really, we just slowly do it throughout the semester, and we have these discussions, and if they leave with a nuanced view that not everything's historical, that's not the worst problem in the world. Like, I don't think we're tied to it. But, um, no, I haven't had too much... If they read, if every, if everyone over there in the religion department read the book, like went through it, they would, um, they would disagree with some of it, um, and I think in the past generation they would really, really hate it. Like I, I wouldn't get hired in BYU religion, certainly not in the last generation. Possibly, like I don't know, I don't know today. I don't, I don't get in trouble in class. Um, you know, I mean, some of them know what I teach, but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think I have too much a problem now but I do know people over there who won't like this like, like you know, well they won't like some of this yeah. just because of the implications right. cool alright well Dr. Trevin Hatch I've kept you for almost three hours so I really appreciate you for all the time and uh, oh we didn't even talk about your other book why don't you put a plug in for, for that one and then you get another book coming up why don't you talk about your future oh, stuff okay I'll just these are okay this is the, the I don't know if they can see the, yeah, see the learning of the Jews what Latter-day Saints can learn from Jewish religious experience this is a book that the that Leonard Greenspoon and I Leonard Greenspoon is the Jewish Studies Chair at Creighton. I met him in, in my doctoral work, and he's been a great mentor. What we wanted to do is just pull together scholars, Jewish scholars, and have a dialogue, but not a traditional dialogue where we just you know pick a topic and then talk about the similarities and sing Kumbaya and that sort of thing. What we, <laughs> what we wanted to do is do something a little bit new and innovative, and that is to give Jews the microphone, so to speak, to, you know, to, to use that again. Let them talk about whatever they want to talk about, whether it's their history or women in modernity or whatever scripture and just let them go and talk about their experience and then we had a Jewish scholar come respond to each one of those chapters not respond in a way that's like oh I disagree with that or LDS scholar scholar, but just to ask the question is there anything in their experience that we haven't that might help us with our experience like any strategies mentality uh, approaches that, that we haven't you know that might help us so it's, it's a fun book. It's a little bit more academic, and some chapters are better than others, just people's interest. But it was really fun to do it's this. It's more of an anthology where you've got different, everybody writes a different chapter. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's fun. Um, it's, it was really nice to, to work with Leonard Greenspan on that, 
on that book. And then I've got we've got a book with my co-author um, Eric Huntsman. He's at the Jerusalem Center right now as a director. But we put together, we wrote, co-authored a book on Holy Week. Um, it's a it's really a practical guide. It's something that I wanted for my own family. Um, and a couple of years ago, the day after, um, it's the conference in 2020 they had where. Um, it's the, the Easter season, and they did this Hosanna shout, and you know, they did all that in conference. Like the next morning, I'm like, you know what? I, I wish I had a book that uh, that I could a step-by-step guide, you know, like readings for every day of the Holy Week that I could use with my family. So I called Eric Huntsman the next day and said, let's put this book together. And it's just kind of um, what we do is we have certain like we each chapter is a day in the Holy in Holy Week, um, all the way through Good Friday and you know Spy Wednesday and all those days, and we say what happened most likely on those days. Here's the scriptural, here's the scripture passages. Here's some scholarship on the material. Here's a section on how Christians have traditionally observed this day, and then suggestions for Latter Day Saints on how to develop traditions at home, different music, food, different things that our other Christian friends have been doing for centuries. So that's all. That's all it is. It's a really fun book, but um, we don't do much of Holy Week, you know, in our tradition. Right. So we wanted to really produce something, you know. That's uh, so. It's it's. There's some academic parts of it, and there's some other more devotional parts, uh, you know, that, that just kind of bring together kind of a guide, you know, for for people to go through with their families. Cool, cool. Anything else? That's it. I'm that's good. It. Thanks for letting me, you know, talk forever about these <laughs> topics that I love. You know, and I just your a lot of your your personal interest in your group. You have a lot of amazing stuff in church history and Book of Mormon. You've done stuff in like the geography, Book of Mormon geography, and mm-hmm. really fun topics. Um, so even though that's the interest, uh, I do appreciate you bringing us, bringing the Bible, uh, you know, giving that some time. And you know. Well, I feel terrible that I really need to do more Bible scholarship. <laughs> um, but it's hard because I want to get John Dominic Crossan and people like that, Bart Ehrman, um, White, what's his name, from Texas, yeah, Jane and James White. You know, it's a lot easier to go to BYU. And I didn't know we had a John Dominic Cross on here. <laughs> Mixed between Mark Goodacre and John Dominic Cross and sprinkled with Jewish studies. Yeah. Mm. And so, uh, Rabbi uh, David Wolpe, I so bad want to get him on. Can you get any connections with him? No, not him, but I have some other, like, I have a lot of other connections. And um, what you can do is start to. F- I can help you find scholars who are still young and hungry, and they don't—they're right. not booked out, but that they are—you uh, know—they, they're not too big to do a, you know, like a podcast for Latter-day Saints. William Deaver's another one. I would—I lo- don't think he does anything anymore. Uh, at least that's what I've heard. But uh, anyway, a lot of my biblical knowledge is probably 20 years old, and those people are getting old now. But. Uh, I need to do more, and I, and I that's one of my goals is to do a lot more biblical scholarship. Well, your so. interest, your interest is uh, is fine. You know, it's. it's I mean, if we're honest, like we're in the Latter Day Saint community, people love the history, and they, they want to hear from Richard Bushman and these other people, and that's great. That's really great. But um, it's, it's it's nice to you know to spend three hours talking nuances of Pharisees and to yes. explain why it matters. I mean, that's it's fun for me. You know. Yeah. Well, it's fun for me too, and I'm I'm going to make an effort to do more of it. So. Especially cool. if I can have you back on. Sure. Yeah. That'd be great. <laughs>
All right. Well, Dr. Trevin Hatch, thank you so much for being on Gospel Tangents. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Appreciate the invite. Mm -hmm. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Trevin Hatch. Trevin, thank you so much for sitting down with me. Uh, your book is fantastic, A Stranger in Jerusalem. If you don't have it, you need to have it. It is a fantastic book, and I hope you saw some of that in, the, in our conversation. So um, thanks again, Dr. Hatch. In our next conversation, I'm excited to have another BYU scholar, uh, Dr. Casey Griffiths, on the show. We're going to talk about 50 more relics of the Restoration. Uh, 50, 50 more relics is sort of the deep cuts. Like, this is the weird stuff uh, that that uh, our publisher, Cedar Ford, may have felt. I don't know if people will know about that, but I'm just thrilled to see this in print because the stuff that's in this book, just because of the way the two books were edited, is demonstrably further off the beaten path and a little bit strange. And yes, James Strang's scepter is one of those um, objects too that I really really was devastated when it wasn't going to be in the first volume and now I'm thrilled that somebody somewhere is going to have a book on their shelf that has a photograph of Strang Scepter <laughs> <laughs> if you like what we're doing here on Gospel Tangents please become a paid subscriber at gospeltangents.com or patreon.com slash gospeltangents we've got full transcripts on our website at gospeltangents.com and if you'd like to check out some of our other conversations, click over here. Thanks. <laughs>